the, provoca- provo- I, the provocation is a re- reference to an incident in the history of Israel that's recounted in Numbers chapter 14 and also in Psalm 95. Now, nine, Psalm 95 is cited here in Hebrews 3. And the incident had to do with Kadesh Barnea, where the spies were sent in to spy out the promised land. And when they came back with a report about all the difficulties that they saw there, everyone but Caleb and Joshua decided that it wasn't worth trying to go into the promised land. Now this was taken by the Lord as unbelief and a rejection of all the things that he had done to bring them to that point, having brought them out of Egypt and having, having provided for them and brought them there, they then murmured and complained and decided they'd be better off back in Egypt. And the writer of Hebrews is comparing their experience to the temptations facing these early Hebrew Christians. The early Hebrew Christians have made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ, but now they are being tempted to not continue on and enter into their rest. They're being tempted to go back to the temple sacrifices, back to the Jewish high priest, back to Moses, and not maintain their hope in Christ and thus commit apostasy. So Hebrews has five major warnings against apostasy. Hebrews 3 has one of them. And it is taken from Psalm 95. So we were studying that last week, and we looked up a lot of cross-references. But let me start with verse 7. Our study will start with verse 10. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. There's that phrase, this generation again. And and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they do not know my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now the warning. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. So the warning is against apostasy. Don't fall away from God. Well, I was thinking about that prayer, and I found in John... Uh, 663, which I found interesting, says, The Spirit gives life, and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are the Spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe, and who would betray him. He went on to say, That's why I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled me. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him while they were unbelievers. They were followers, but they weren't believers. John chapter 6 is... um, Let me tie that in what you just read with Hebrews here. Earlier in Hebrews, it talked about Moses' house and Christ's house, and how Christ is greater. And so there's an analogy or a contrast between Moses and Jesus. John is doing that also, because in John 5, at the very end, he said, had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, because Moses wrote of me. And then you go to John 6, and what does Jesus do is he multiplies the bread, right? He feeds the multitude, and they're going to take him by force and make him king. 
And he doesn't, that's not God's purposes, so he leaves them. Walks on water, goes to the other side of the Galilee. They follow him over there and are still after Jesus. And now they're, they got the idea that, um, they said Moses gave us man in the wilderness. So they're still thinking about Moses, right? Jesus gave them bread. Moses gave us bread. Here Jesus is the new Moses, John 5. And so what we end up with is this idea that, okay, prove that you're the new Moses. Give us bread. And he says, the bread that I give you is my flesh for the life of the world. And then when he started pressing them about what the real need wasn't for a king at this point, or bread, or a new Moses to give them manna in the wilderness, but what they really needed was atonement for sins. The blood sacrifice. And when he started pressing that, that's when this happened. They said, all right, you know, we're not going to get bread, and we're not going to have a king, um, and all you're going to give us is your flesh and your blood. Uh, we don't let us. So that wasn't our agenda. And they all left, but a little bitty handful. You know? But why is John telling us that? To answer an apologetic question. If Jesus was really the Messiah, then why did so many people reject him? And why did even his own followers go away from him? And it says there, because he knew from the beginning who would. And the ones that did stay are the ones that God gave him. So that God's purposes are not failing. Yes, John chapter 6, the whole chapter, I'm just summarizing it. He was in about chapters, or verse 66. I may use that as my intro to the debate with uh, Greg Boyd on the 19th, but I'm not sure yet. That's my, my plan right now is to go where he doesn't think I'm going to go. Amen. And John 6 is not normally where you'd start a debate on predestination. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. But uh, John 6 is a very interesting thing, because if God's purpose was to give people what they want to get to maximize the number of followers... Yeah, John 6, he has a revival going and he kills it by telling him about blood and flesh. You know? And so Jesus really should have gone to Dale Carnegie course. He wouldn't have all these problems. Alright, let's get to Hebrews 3. Now let's talk about this angry with this generation. Hebrews 3.10 Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They do not know my ways. Remember that article I wrote about this generation being a pejorative, qualitative term, and not uh, not necessarily a chronological limitation. And the thing that it's talking about is the people, it wasn't even all of the people in that generation, because there were exceptions, Caleb and Joshua, but it was, a, it was a people who saw the great and mighty works of God and had every reason to believe God, but in the midst of their great opportunity to not only demonstrate their faith in God and to put their faith in God and to go on into the promised land, but they uh, refused and decided and mocked God and basically said, we'd rather have Egypt, we like our slavery better than your deliverance. And so that's the warning about falling away from God. And there, I have a cross-reference here. Linda, could you look up Hosea 4.12? If we get to it, I'm going to read a big section of Psalm 78 because it's a commentary also on this same incident, just like Psalm um, 95 was. It's amazing how the Jews commemorated their own failures. It shows the inspiration of Scripture. Normally, if you're going to write a, a memorial for your own people, you don't write about your own failures. 
Okay. Hosea 4.12, Linda. Okay. Of my people, they consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. Yeah, they're unfaithful people that are going astray, and they have a living God who showed many miracles, but they think like a stick of wood instead. And that's actually a spirit speaking. But think about this generation, this, this whole thing. If you go back to Genesis 6, 8 and 9, it says, And Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, so he found grace. God gave him grace. And these are the generations of Noah. He was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God. It's the same concept here. Of, that was a righteous generation who was pure in his generations, and here you have that this generation, this other one. The term generation is often used with a qualitative connotation and not a time limit. And if you read that article that I wrote, I was arguing that for Matthew 24. That I wasn't talking about just a 40-year time span. Because remember, Jesus said, this generation shall not pass away until all these things come to pass. Well, if you just mean a 40-year time span, then what is he talking about? But if it's talking about this group of people who are hardened against God, then it begins to make sense because it goes all the way across. It spans the generations up until the very return of Christ when God rectifies the problem. Um, then let's go to verse 11, Hebrews 3.11. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now this enters, the, uh, this is sort of a foreshadowing of a theme that we're going to be discussing for a couple chapters. The idea of entering God's rest. Now, this is the theme of Sabbath. And the author of Hebrews is going to discuss what does it really mean to enter into a true Sabbath rest. And this is a little foretaste here when he says, They shall not enter my rest. Why would they not why were they likely to fail to enter God's rest? Because of unbelief. Now, the rest in the Old Testament was the idea of finding their home in the Promised Land, right? Yes. Where they would have a place, and God would be their God, and this would be their land, and they would have their temple built there, a place to worship, a place that God had promised them. And they decided not to enter because of their fear of the battle that would happen in the process. Okay, um, got your Bible there, Pete? Numbers 32, 10 through 13. The Lord's anger was aroused that day, and he sworn his oath. Because they have not followed me wholeheartedly, not one of the men, 20 years old or born, but some of our people will see, and that promise not all the day. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one except Selah, the son of another generation to arise before they went in. And uh, so they had 40 years of funerals, somebody said. 40 years of having funerals. 
until it was time to uh, go in with the people that were younger. Yeah, Moses died before he went in. Yeah, in Deuteronomy, I think, I, I heard a great sermon when I was in Bible college on that. Some of these old Pentecostal preachers really had a way of, of preaching the sermon. And, and there was this one passage that says, and it was 11 days trip from wherever it was to uh, Kadesh Barney or where, you know, it was 11 day trip. And then it says, and 40 years later, <laughs> 11, 11 days and in 40 years go in a circle. <laughs> and uh, I think that old Pentecostal uh, preacher sermon, if I remember right, was this. He says, uh, you know, it takes time to get where God wants you to go. But you can't speed that time up, but you can sure slow it down. <laughs> yeah. 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 His warning was, you know, if you start if you start disobeying God, your journey gets a lot longer. If you start going in circles, no, it's happened before. Let's let's look now at the warning that is given to us, the readers of the Book of Hebrews. Because of the experience of your forefathers, he says to these Hebrew Christians, and to all of us, take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. The word take care there means be careful. And it's in the imperative, so you could put an exclamation mark after it in the English if you want to. Watch out. The warning sign, the big warning sign. Beware of dog, it says at the junkyard. <laughs> Beware high voltage, it says at the power lines. And so it's that kind of a thing. It's a big warning sign that would say, danger lurks, do not go here. And the warning sign, the imperative warning sign, is that we would be like these wilderness wanderers and not want to press on into the rest that God's promised. Not pressing forward in our faith in Messiah, but falling away from the living God and thinking that maybe if we went back to Egypt, we would be more happy there, so to speak. And I, how many times have we had a discussion about whether anybody really will apostatize or not? We've had a lot of discussions, but I'm willing to talk about it again. Dan, and then... Well, Jesus you know. never caused his sheep to apostatize. He says the dog goes back to his vomit, and the pig goes back to his slop. Those are his followers. But the sheep, he left the 99 for the one. The sheep know the master's voice, and they ask. Never does he refer only uh, sheep's wolves and sheep's clothing, but never the sheep, because he leaves the 99 for the one. There's dogs that are followers like Judas and pigs, but they, they've left. They've been around the Lord like Judas, but they weren't followers. They weren't believers. They're dogs or pigs going back. The sheep will never be lost because they know the Master, and he'll leave when they disobey the chastise him. He'll leave the 99 to bring them back. So I, I see Scripture always showing uh, these weren't believers. Okay. Do you think the warning is still valid for people it's that aren't? It's warning because you be going to heaven and uh, some of you will receive communion unworthy, you'll die. You'll be disciplined. You'll go to heaven and uh, you'll build wood, hay, and stubble and the Holy Spirit attest that you'll go to heaven as if by fire. 
It's just a terrible thing. Like you bring a gift. The kings brought gifts to Jesus. Notice they didn't bend before Mary and give the gifts to her. They bent. When you go to heaven, you want to bring, what do we say, our crown soul before the Lord. We want to go to heaven bare. But nevertheless, there's Christians that will, like the thief on the cross. But yet he had faith in the Lord. God will keep okay. his promise. All right, so you're saying that that God will preserve his true sheep. Yes. But that the warning still ought to be heeded. Should be heeded. We, we, should, take it, we should take it very you seriously. Should be taken home early. Okay. Carolyn. Well, the question I have here is kind of this past week. But it says they shall never enter my rest. And that has always confused me. Because that, when I look at that age, Now, what about striving to enter rest? 
Well, there's a, there's a word in, in Luke where it says, strive to enter the narrow gate. And uh, John MacArthur points out that the word in the Greek is agonizomai. Agonize to enter the narrow gate. And so the, the idea is that this messianic salvation is of such es- explicit value that whatever it would cost, if it would mean leaving father and mother, losing your family, losing your job, losing your money, losing everything that you ever had, that if you would enter into this rest, just like these Old Testament people, well, yeah, we'd love to have the rest of the promised land, but we've got to go in through with these giants and battles and, you know, there's danger and we don't want to, we don't want to take the risk. The striving is that whatever, that Messianic salvation is of such great value that whatever it would cost would be worth to get it and the reward is eternal rest, uh, starting now and not yet. Yes, Keith. I mean, I think it goes back to that person who ever trusts a man is blessed who ever trusts in God because the man is our works, and trusting in God's righteousness is our rest. And the rest is Christ's righteousness, and as we are there, we, we act righteously, but it's a resting because it comes to us by a gift. Yeah, in fact, it says in there, he who has ceased from his own works has entered into rest. I think our own works is either self-righteous law works or just sin in general. But trying to please God by the works of the law is a heavy burden. It's a yoke of bondage. And that's what Paul says in Galatians, is don't return to the yoke of bondage. So, does that help? hours learning how to be a foster parent down at Hennepin County. I didn't complain about it. The Lord forgive me. All the way down there. (laughs) No, I didn't complain. So I took along along a whole stack of C.F.W. Walther on the topic of predestination. Because that was way more interesting than what they were saying. Yeah, God works in Missouri. So I'm reading with this German um, Lutheran from 1877 on the topic of predestination while I'm sitting here listening to all this rigmarole. And Walter was so delightful. I love how he was explaining these things. And something like what you're saying, he would mention in there that a person would come along and say, well, if there is such a thing as predestination and the elect, how do I know that maybe I'm not one and maybe I'll ultimately be lost? And he talked to pastorally about somebody comes and says, you know, I'm concerned about my soul and I'm wondering if I'm really God's true sheep. Maybe I'm just a Judas. And Walter would say, you know, basically say, that's good. That's a very good feeling to have. Because our concern shows the work of grace of the Holy Spirit. And the people that are going, oh, I'm fine, and everybody's going to heaven, and you know, just kind of going to be a good person. That's bad. <laughs> it's really bad when you just kind of out in your jolly way thinking because you're born Lutheran, you're going to heaven. 
you know, in, in his in his idea. And he says, well, your 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 concern for your soul is a good thing, and you keep don't don't let that go away from you. And so when we read this and we take it seriously, that am I any different than those people in the wilderness? Am I more righteous? Am I more noble-minded? No. Could I fall away from God? Yes, I could. Will He keep me? Well, I believe in His grace to keep me, but I don't believe in my integrity to stay kept. Amen. So, so I think we ultimately what He said: put your trust in God. A P. You had a question. preaching to preach the gospel the way Jesus did because if you're telling people come to Jesus and you'll have a better life whether depending on what their idea of a better life is it may not happen a lot of people come to Jesus and they get more miseries and battles and difficulties than they had before but he but but promise that you come to Jesus your sins will be forgiven you have the gift of eternal life and he'll make you a disciple what well, that won't disappoint you and I thought about the parallel before, but wouldn't a lot of the, where the faith teaching, say, come to God and you have a free meal, be very similar in concept? They try to make him a bread king by force. Oh, yeah. We're going to force you to give us bread to make a king. Well, that doesn't work. Now we're going to force, on a spiritual level, we're going to force you to be a, a sugar daddy uh, because we have faith and you have to do it now. Right. How to write your own ticket with God, that famous sermon by Kenneth Hagin. i got to admit, there was a time in my life when I didn't listen to that and believed it. I found out a little later, God doesn't let me write my own ticket. If I wrote my own ticket, it'd probably be one that sent me to jail. <laughs> All right. so here's some cross-references. Sam, Jeremiah 7.24, and Norma, Jeremiah 16.12. And Kathy, uh, Jeremiah eighteen twelve, Pete, Jeremiah seventeen five through nine, and um, Mary, one Corinthians ten twelve, seven twenty four. A lot of stuff in Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a tough job. He was preaching to nobody that wanted to listen to him. Nobody. <laughs> Five through nine. Yep, we alluded to that earlier. Okay, Jeremiah seven twenty four. But they hearkened not, nor inclined they were here, but walked in the consoles and the imaginations of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. They didn't listen. They, they followed their own evil heart, and they went backwards and not forwards. That's Jeremiah's lament. Sixteen twelve again in Jeremiah. He says to them, you did worse than your fathers. You're following the imagination of your evil heart and not listening to God. Jeremiah 18, 12, Kathy. Then 
accommodation of women. He praised the married. He, he, Mary's accommodated him. He's been going to Mary to get to God. He does not know, the Pope himself does not know that he can go to heaven and neither does anybody else in the Catholic Church. On down. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point. I remember a friend of mine, Jay Howard, whose father-in-law is charismatic Catholic. You know Jay, right, Dick? And he was over at his father-in-law's house, and Jay has his apologetic ministry to help reach out to people in the cults. And, and somebody called over to find him while he was visiting his father-in-law, who was supposedly charismatic, spirit-filled Catholic, right? And he's talking on the phone to this person who was asking about Jehovah Witnesses or something, and he says, and he was telling them, now if you believe in Jesus Christ and trust him, repent and believe the gospel, you can know you have eternal life. Amen. And then he was sharing the gospel on the phone. When he got done, his father-in-law says, you can't tell people that. <laughs> he can't know. You can't have any assurance. And so that is uh, at the heart of the Reformation, Amen. was whether people could have assurance of salvation. Yeah, what's, what's really funny and contradictory in the whole thing well, they had, they had the special revelation was an exception. All right, let's not forget Pete, Jeremiah 17, 5 through 9. Because I think it explains the whole the gospel, the whole Bible. Blessed is the man who trusts in God. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. And any system of works righteousness ultimately makes us trust man. And only the true gospel, as preached by Christ and his apostles, can give us hope in God. Our hope is ultimately only in God. Yes? Back to Jack's comment, if you will. Um, we take this this position quite cleanly that we know that we're saved. We're okay with that whole thing. The Catholics say you can't know. Right. And yet we still have the Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things? He said you are lost. Right, because that's false assurance. Okay, but uh, the issue is that, I mean, the difference between false assurance and real assurance, you end up saying, by the fruits. It says in Matthew 7, yes, you do. He said, you shall know them by their fruits. And what's your testimony? But the fruit of the word of God is the one that he sent, so it ends up getting back if you either believe or you don't believe. Amen. Because the fruits themselves, you can have false fruits if you just look at an external action. Okay. I think the last thing you were going to say. All right. Um, first of all, let me recommend some reading on this. The best chapter on what we're talking about I've ever read in any book was a chapter on assurance in John MacArthur's book, 
the Gospel According to the Apostles. Not to be little Ryan's booklet. He, he has a very good uh, booklet on this, The Anchor of Assurance. It also deals with these issues. And it isn't just a real simple answer, but yet there are answers. And when MacArthur points out that there's two errors by emphasis. If you, if, let me tell you that the error on one side. There are those who, in order to grant assurance to the maximum number of people, make faith mental assent and grant assurance based on a decision. And those are the ones that will tell you, you make a decision for Jesus, and you write down the date in your Bible, and sign your name to it, and from there on, that's all you need to know to know that you're saved. Now, that is what uh, the objective aspect of it. That's based totally on the objective, meaning that's what's outside of myself. I made a decision. I believe these things. And those people say that if even for one millisecond you made such a valid decision, mental sense, then you are saved. And, and that even if you live for the devil the rest of your lives, that's called once saved, always saved. And they give a lot of assurance to a lot of people. And they accuse MacArthur of not allowing people to have assurance, which is a false accusation. I don't believe that that's a biblical doctrine. I don't think faith is mental assent. And I don't think assurance is only based on, I wrote a thing in my Bible and I made a decision. How many people have signed decision cards at one point or another and go out and don't really walk in faith? Don't have any fruit. Never any fruit. Now the other extreme, according to MacArthur, is what he called the Puritan approach, which was um, subjective only. And the Puritans were really always struggling about assurance because they were always looking within themselves for signs of election. And a lot of Puritan literature was about assurance. How do I know I'm one of the elect? And, and they would be looking to see if God was doing a work in their lives within. And they were, they were doubting. That all, you know, I don't know if God, I see so many sins in my life, I don't know if God's really at work. Now, that would be subjective only. Here's objective only. What MacArthur is claiming is that assurance has aspects of both. The objective aspect of it is what Jesus Christ did on our behalf, the facts of the gospel, and the fact that we do believe that Christ died for sins once for all, and God raised him from the dead, and that is our hope and our assurance. But also there are signs that, that, that there is real fruit in our lives that also add to our assurance. Okay, Ryan, you wrote a book on it, so we'll let you tell us. Peter, verse, verse two, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 to 11, I think gives the most, in one passage, gives us the best answer to all these things. And I'm going to read all of that, because I think it's real important. Starting with verse 3, His divine power has been to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to the whole world, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. Knowledge, knowledge, and so 
to yourself. God already knows who. God knows who's saved. The question is how well we know about ourselves. Yeah, so so it's to us that we need to know that. Yes. Yeah. 
definitely do. Well, will, that is going to be all the way through Hebrews, by the way. And that, that is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living. God is quoted in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews. And Edward's uh, sermon was sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's the only thing of Edward's anybody ever has heard of. I mean, he wrote, that's just a minor thing that he ever did. But when I was in school, we had to read that. And when we read it, we thought, those Puritans are nuts. You know, who would want to go to church and hear that on Sunday? But, you know, when I was in the Methodist church, would to God, I'd heard that at least once. I <laughs> what I would say. Didn't the Telegram uh, Association have statistics taken every now and again, and their numbers show that people that go forward during the Crusades, many, many, many people do that, but 85% of them are not involved, actively involved in the church one year later. That's right. So it has a lot to do with commitment beyond your confession of faith. Yeah, there, that's the, well, there's several things, reasons for that. One of them being is the parable of the sower and the seeds. And that's why you just can't say, well, I mean, mental ascent, that's all I need. We need to be born again. Let's get to this verse. <laughs> we got to get at least this verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Maybe it'll answer all our questions. <laughs> so, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't well, there it is. Oh, I just started more questions. <laughs> if you think you're standing, be careful you don't fall. Sorry, I'll bring that back to the Council of Trent. Show me the difference. They grant no assurance to anybody. Now, thinking you're standing and being careful isn't the same as not having any assurance. In other words, it doesn't say don't ever think you are standing. It says just don't be giddy about it and uh, yeah, take it lightly. There's a, there's a difference. There's a difference between not granting assurance and having it in the context of always being mindful of our, human, our humanity, our sinfulness, and our need for the gospel. And I think there's a balance that we need of granting assurance based on the great comfort of the gospel and always being careful not to become prideful or trusting in man or trusting in ourselves because that would that's not a good way to approach it. And so there's a balance of hope and trust and confidence and fear that we would go astray. Yes. Well, I think What did he say?
dead, buried, and raised. Yeah. And God commands <laughs> yeah, Ryan and I had a discussion once, I think, I don't know where we were, but we started talking about that and came, I think it was in the midst of our discussion, you know, I think bat, I think that the altar call is a replacement for baptism. And uh, Keith and then Pete, and then Brett. But the Council of Trent, this indulgence, there was contemporary with that, and that was what the context was. So when you think of the hypocrisy of saying no man can say he's saved, otherwise he's an anathema. And at the same time, with the other hand, saying, but reading one's salvation by this piece of paper, the inconsistency between that is massive. Yeah, well, you're dangling salvation out there as something you hope for and you work toward, but you're never sure you get it, so you have to keep working, 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 working. Yeah, it's, it's just like dangling this thing out there, but you, you can't ever have it. Pete? Yeah, think about uh, think about Peter's sermon on, in uh, Acts chapter two, the, the very first sermon of the early church, when they were convicted by the Holy Spirit and said, "What shall we do?" What did Peter say? Come forward. No, Peter said, "Repent and be baptized, each of you, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." So he called for repentance. And, now, I'm not saying that baptismal regeneration, but yet it was that was their public act to say their faith. How many of you know that if you just stay away from fellowship, 
and just go your own way. Uh, you might think you're not getting anything out of it, but wait until you don't have it. It definitely, I definitely, there's the heart, the hardness just starts creeping in. I'm not saying we lose our salvation, but we start getting hard. And the, the Word of God softens up our hearts and gives us a heart of flesh. And a Christian fellowship is part of them. Right. And so, encouraging one another daily is, is a good thing to do. And so we'll start with that verse next Sunday. And we got two verses done? Wow. We're, we're cooking.